We live. Hey, we live. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Plum Radio. This is our Monday Instagram live show. This is race therapy, but make it a podcast. So today is, let's see, what day is it? October 19th. We're on episode 26 of Plum Radio. We're so close, so close to this election. Wow, 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 wow. I'm Dolly Lee, your host, and here's my lovely co-host. I'm Joey Yang. Congrats on surviving another week, everyone. Congrats, We did all. it. We made it. We made it. <laughs> How's your week been, Joey? Do anything fun? Oh, yes. I did tons of fun stuff. Mostly sleeping. Mostly uh, sleeping, I my favorite. A ton. You have to uh, sleep in also, because it's almost Saturday, Scorpio season. I had... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, it's, it's it's getting to that time of year when it's uh, you know you're about ready to go into hibernation. So, uh, you know, I'm preparing for hibernation. I also prepared for hibernation this week by uh, on Saturday. I went and I had two milkshakes. Uh, oh shit! I went and got a milkshake, and then <laughs> what kind of milkshake? I decided that I wanted another one, so I drove back through around and I had another one. So, <laughs> wait, what so kind of milkshake how, though? That's how my week was. Oreo. Oreo. Oreo yes. milkshake. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I have no regrets. No, no like regrets. 1,600 <laughs> calories of Oreo milkshake. and <laughs> Sleep in milkshake. Yeah, that's you know, in, in the words of a great pop star, William Hung, I did my very best. I have no regrets. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That was my week. How was your week, Dolly? Oh, my week was interesting. You know, I was actually back on set producing this week. I was, a, I was directing the shoot and... Things are really different, you know? We had to put in a lot of COVID safety measures, different things like all of the crew was wearing masks. Um, everyone had to sign a questionnaire before coming onto set. I This time I got a temperature gun from Scamazon, um, but they work, you know? They, <laughs> just to make sure you gotta be extra safe. You have to actually rent a lot more zoom lenses. You have to be mindful of how distanced you are from the people you're filming. So this is definitely the new pandemic normal, right? Like. But it's good to it's good to be back producing again. It's good to be back on a set again. Speaking of COVID, we're literally still in a global pandemic, and the U.S. is now seeing a third wave. No, oh, gosh, not feminism. i think is it the opposite of feminism? I don't know, but it's it's pretty bad. Is this pandemic the opposite of third wave feminism? <laughs> first title, first chapter of the book. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, God, oh, God. Speaking of this third wave, uh, I mean, I know a lot of us are still thinking about, like, how do we leave the house? How do we get back to normal? What is this, like, crazy social anxiety that we've been going through for an entire year already? Um, and one of our beloved Plum Radio members, LG, our dear sweet friend LG, wrote in about this New Yorker article from May, I believe, written by Peter Hessler. Um, it's, the name of it is Nine Days in Wuhan, the Ground Zero of the Coronavirus Pandemic. This is actually a really great article. Here, let's see if I can find it. Oh, yes. Ooh, nice and technology. big. You know, technology. Look at that <laughs> screen share. <laughs> so this article, actually, a lot of Chinese international students here in the U.S. were talking about it. And um, I think, you know, probably because of elections and things like that, it got a little buried. Peter Hessler is one of the few 
white correspondents that I trust about China. He actually lives and teaches in China. Him and Evan Osnos, who both write for The New Yorker, are both great China writers. The article is incredibly interesting. You know, it talks about going back to Wuhan, the epicenter of the outbreak, to just do some normal things. Like he went there to get some glasses. Um, it turns out that the wet market where the outbreak started, the second floor is actually all prescription glasses. So you can, <laughs> <laughs> so you can get your fish, your poultry, and your glasses all in one. It's a, Party it's on a, the first floor, business on the second. You know, <laughs> it's a very it's a very Chinese combination plate. You know, like. <laughs> two arbitrary things put them together and make it a business i'm at the wet market i'm at the <laughs> eyeglasses store i'm at the combination wet market and the eyeglasses store yes 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 <laughs> but yes this article so it's nine days in wuhan peter hessler gets some glasses and he talks to some folks in the city about how life has changed but honestly about how life has really not changed so he talks to people about how like the government initially couldn't be trusted in terms of what information they were sharing in the beginning, what data they were sharing in the beginning, especially because Chinese citizens are already, they're so used to getting asymmetrical information from the government, right? Ashley, 100%, you need glasses yes, exactly. to pick the right chicken. Exactly. How are you going to know whether your chicken is silky or not if you can't see it? <laughs> that's the vision third eye vision <laughs> <laughs> almost as good as the bun me jewelry store uh like ada mentioned that's yes true. yes 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 <laughs> bun me jewelry store <laughs> shout out to the mobile foam momo dumpling store in jackson heights <laughs> another combination <laughs> but you know in this epicenter of wuhan now they've seen about three four thousand deaths i mean that that number is probably not super accurate and lower than it should be but compared to the united states where we've seen over two hundred thousand deaths even if it was a magnitude of 10 off mm -hmm. you can't help but ask this question of how and why right for people who are friends in china you see like people are just going on vacation not wearing masks they are just roaming free. They don't have any... Fuck it. Mask off. Mask off, right? They don't have any... <laughs> Even recently when Qingdao saw 12 positive cases, they shut down the entire city of 10 million people and then started testing every single citizen, right? So when LG wrote in about this New Yorker article, she asked, what exactly are the differences between our societies that allows for them to resume life and to have this pandemic under control versus us where we're still, I mean, kind of shitting ourselves. <laughs> and if you guys have thoughts on this, feel free to share. Obviously, it's an open discussion. We're all just theorizing. Megan um, says the Americans are mad and they should be because <laughs> <laughs> because America shit the bed. Megan adds, you know, why is a New Yorker praising China? It's like, it's true. People are allergic to nuance. How dare you say a nice thing about How big dare China? You? How dare big China? <laughs> okay, on this show, we're going to talk about a lot of nuanced things on big China and offer you some other critical theories. I have three main reasons that I shared with LG that I'm going to share with you guys. So I think the first one is that China dealt with SARS twice previously. They understand what a pneumonia causing pandemic can and will do. So they have that experience to live off of. Two, it's China is truly a socialist society, right? It's a communist society where collectivist thinking is more important than individual thinking, right? And of course, there are a lot of people who get left in the cracks in China's bureaucracy because it's a country full of so many different people. 
Um, and free doggy lessons. Douglas here adds that New Zealand got rid of COVID twice, right? And this is true, right? China is not the only country we can look to. Um, many other countries did a much better job than us, but China is the epicenter, right? And they are currently at a total of what, about 4,000 deaths, a little bit more than that. Um, so they dealt with, so with SARS twice. They have a much more collectivist mindset in their thinking. And I think, honestly, the biggest one is Chinese, un Chinese society generally understands short-term sacrifice for long-term gain, right? That means you eat shit so that you can eat cake later. <laughs> no, I want to eat my shit. I want to have my shit and eat it too. <laughs> <laughs> Take my shit and eat it too. <laughs> That's the American mentality, right? Oh, yeah. The U.S. is actually, it's the complete opposite where everything is about short-term benefit. That's why you can buy a home for 5% down. That's why it's we like, have no, it's like so 3 much It's 3% down now. Oh, my God. 3% yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's you can get a mortgage for 3 so much down. debt. It's all about short-term vision, right? And when we when you exist in a society of only short-term vision, it's hard to imagine sacrificing a month in quarantine for the sake of being able to go outside and not have so many people die. And as someone who's Chinese American, obviously I feel this too when sometimes I'm just like I don't care for the long-term vision. You know, it's cultural, right? It's cultural when you have your parents telling you it's like do this thing for a very short period of time. It seems like a long period of time, but it would be worth it in the end. And your your American side is always like, "No, I want instant gratification <laughs> now." <laughs> <laughs> but I what was it from Willy Wonka? It's like, but I want a golden ticket and I want to know. <laughs> I think I, I forget what it was, but and I just want to I just want to read this interesting passage that really stuck with me and LG um, from this New Yorker article. During the pandemic, it was striking that when the Chinese indulge in conspiracy theories, and yes, there are plenty of conspiracy theories, these ideas rarely resulted in per personally risky behavior, as they often did in the U.S. <laughs> Perhaps the Chinese have been inoculated by decades of censorship and misinformation. In such an environment, people develop strong instincts for self-preservation, and they don't seem as disoriented by social media as many Americans are. Wow. How about that? Pew, Feeling? pew, pew. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> <laughs> as Ashley says, Americans would fall, would fail the marshmallow test every single time that the marshmallow test is when you eat all the marshmallows and you have no patience for it and yeah it's like <laughs> no you ever play the game wait. chubby bunny where you just try to <laughs> shove as many marshmallows as you can that's in your mouth america. that's america america is the chubbiest bunny, bunny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, easy choices now hard life later <laughs> it's true it's true um, for everyone who's asian american think about the times where your parents are like oh yes just sacrifice now and it'll be all be worth it later but this whole comment about like how disorienting social media is for americans versus chinese citizens and chinese citizens being so used to asymmetrical information and censorship that resonates you know, it's clearly social media has, is something that's like tearing our society apart and hard for us to control. Ironically, so, it yeah. seems like, you know, people who are dealing with misinformation seem to learn how to think for themselves. Hmm. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Did we just whoa, horse whoa, you whoa. around? Whoa. It's as uh -oh. if Chinese uh -oh. people can actually think as individuals is truly crazy. Truly, truly cra insane information. <laughs> 
So LG, appreciate you for bringing this article up and asking us to discuss it. It is fascinating if you guys want to read it. This is Peter Hessler's article, Nine Days in Wuhan um, in The New Yorker. And here Douglas says in the comments, millennials sacrifice now, still hard later. And congrats to Peter Hessler for being a New Yorker correspondent who can manage not to pull his dick out during the Zoom call. <laughs> I mean, we don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no hey, slander, hey, no you, slander, you, but we, we don't know. There's no Zoom in China. It's fine. There's no uh, Zoom in China. <laughs> we posted about the Ai Weiwei documentary Coronation that came out mm-hmm. a couple months ago. And this documentary, for those who aren't familiar, basically is filming inside of Wuhan during the lockdown. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because this movie was pitched by Ai Weiwei himself as mm-hmm. like, you know, a tale about authoritarianism and like the horrors of state control. And like it, they says, like it says, the film records the state's brutally efficient militarized response to control the virus. Sprawling emergency field hospitals were erected in a matter of days. 40,000 medical workers were bust in from all over China and the city's residents were sealed into their homes. And it's like, yes. Yeah. That like, seems, seems like that's yes. what you do. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. It was like, and it was like, it's funny because like the whole pitch of it was like bad China and like Ai Weiwei, like for sure, he has a bone to pick oh, with yeah. the Chinese government. I, mean, I get that. That's legit. A, a prisoner in like, his own home for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think Ai Weiwei has tons of reasons to to you know pick a pick a bone with the Chinese government, but like I watched this movie and the impression that I'm left with after this movie is like this is what happens when yes you have this like very powerful state but like it actually comes into action to like actually do stuff and help people and try to mm-hmm. stop the pandemic you know so a lot of the movie was filmed inside one of Wuhan's temporary hospitals. Um, and so, first of all, the fact that there was even a temporary hospital at all, right, right. that they built right. these huge hospitals to accept all these patients, right, and you're inside the this temporary hospital, right, and you start and you see, like, the nurses and the doctors and they're wearing, like, full PPE, full PPE, and by full PPE, I mean not just, like, your goggles and your mask, but, mm. like, a bunny suit, a smock over your bunny suit, gloves, goggles, face mask, face shield, like, everything mm-hmm. the whole nine mm-hmm. yards and then they showed like the inside of the shower rooms where it was like you had your individual shower stalls for like the nurses and doctors to shower down after their shift um you know the patients like had ventilators and, and this is supposed to be like the critical view of like the the chinese like state right. response right but like what i saw was that the government built a temporary hospital to help all these people and then they actually had like doctors and nurses and like protected them and like gave them the things that they needed to fight the virus and the death toll four or five thousand right even if you assume that they're off by a factor of 10 right and mm-hmm. people hadn't been estimating the true death toll as like closer to ten thousand. but yeah. even if you say it was like a factor of 10 off the china still per capita had a death toll one tenth of what the u.s had even if you assume that china is misreporting by a factor of 10 right it's it's wild right like now we actually have some time to look back on this pandemic and look at all the ways in which other countries dealt with it right and you have to ask the question of how and why right there there has to be something in between what we have which is 220,000 deaths and counting and a third wave on its way up as flu season returns and then on the other side of the world, you have four to 10,000 deaths for four times as many people. 
you you really have to ask these questions because so many of us are now you know still stuck in our homes still concerned about can i leave my house can i see my parents when's the next time i'm going to go back to work these are very real concerns and real problems that people are facing and you know as people also talk more about socialism i think it's also important to look at societies that are socialist you know talking to one of our our sweet plum radio members wei yang um she talked about how in china she ho- she hopes to be able to retire there since she's been paying into social security and social security in china you have really good retirement benefits and she's like i just healthcare is so expensive in the us i don't know how i'm going to be able to retire here right and this pandemic shows in the us you're going to have to pay for your healthcare in other countries very often when you're sick due to a global crisis the government is going to take care of you and why yeah. don't we have that <laughs> well 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 <laughs> um, so in like the promotional materials for this movie ai weiwei says that ultimately the result of this like this chinese like lockdown is a society that's lacking in trust transparency and respect for humanity but you know speaking of like having no respect for humanity like what about the 220,000 people in america who have died officially who have died officially from covid not from mm-hmm. pneumonia or like covid related pneumonia just from covid 220,000 people in the us right um you know and and like like megan mentioned in the comments just now you know if in the us if you're supposed to have freedom what kind of freedom is it if you're locked down in your home and you're locked down last years instead of yeah. weeks right yeah. well, if if you're so scared of state power but you're trapped in your house for 2 years what kind of freedom is that you know like what kind of freedom is it if you have to like fend for yourself to be safe against a global pandemic and and make ends meet and get to tomorrow you know what kind of freedom is it if the price of the freedom is your life mhm exactly and you know who pays the cost of that it's 100% the people of color black mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. undocumented immigrants Mm-hmm. I mean, these 220,000 deaths, most of those are, I mean, yes, of course, older people, but it's going to be communities who don't have access to better healthcare, who can't just quarantine, who are essential yet not treated as essential. So really appreciate you, LG, for bringing this topic to mind. You know, it's hard not to think about it um, right now as we're entering this third wave. And I think it really shows the disposability of people in our in the u.s system who is disposable who is worth Mm -hmm. sacrificing who Mm -hmm. is it okay to sacrifice right Mm -hmm. and when we talk about prioritizing the community what that really means when you read between the lines is that it's okay to sacrifice people whose lives are you know perhaps they're impoverished perhaps they don't have a choice but to work minimum wage those are the people who were sacrificing for the economy yeah. And Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick just went mask off and said it. He just said, people are going to have to die for the economy. That's that's life under capitalism. That's life as a disposable person under capitalism, right? When you have China, which is arguably both socialist and extremely capitalist, you know, even in that system, you know, if you, you're not going to shut down the entirety of society, if you believe that like people just have to die to keep the economy going, that's clearly not what the response from China was, right? Like, did they potentially like cover up the initial um like their initial information about the virus yeah did they misreport it 
maybe when they like when they did figure it out did they like take mm -hmm. the steps that they had to take to get it under control yeah and yeah you know, and it's showing now right we're mm -hmm. locking ourselves in our homes with our ak-47s and <laughs> everyone else the, and people on the other side of the world are moving on right and we're still we're still like overwhelmed with anxiety mm -hmm. yeah so you know what happens next third wave is coming People need to still be vigilant. People are resuming life. You know, of course, life still has to continue. But you also have people now who are so afraid of leaving their homes. Even in that New Yorker article from Peter Hessler, one guy was talking about how he's now hoarding 50 pounds of rice at a time because he's just afraid of what happens next. And that's what creates that mentality is like not feeling safe, not feeling protected. And of course, a global pandemic, a government can only do so much during a global pandemic. Like if it's coming, it's coming. But you want your government to do something. Yeah, you know, and and the on the other side of that lockdown and the brutal state control is just the pool rave of your dreams. So, you know, like... <laughs> there is a Jay Chow rave at the end of the short term sacrifice. Rave, rave away. We want to rave. As someone who actually loves going dancing and going to the club, it, it does truly break my heart. So write to us at any point, you know, tell us what you've been reading and watching. We want to discuss these topics with you. You can email us at hi at plumradio.com or slide right into our DMs at listen to Plum Radio. You can use your beautiful voice so we don't have to constantly hear our own and leave us a voicemail for a DM as well, which we love and appreciate. Uh, but yeah, tell us what you're reading. Tell us what you're what you're listening to. Uh, slide in those DMs. Let's do our whole and blessing so we can bless our show for our guest. Joey, will you give us our first hole? Uh, I'll kick us off with a hole this week. Actually, I'm not sure if it's a hole or a blessing, but it is a literal hole. Harris oh. County, Texas, which is where Houston is, is offering finger condoms for voters who are oh. voting in person with touchscreens. They, <laughs> the Harris there. County clerk tweeted a picture of these little uh, a finger little, condoms. Little pocket, for you. Little, little socks. <laughs> yeah, just a little finger condom uh, or a Republican condom, as they say in Texas, uh, for, you, <laughs> for you to use the touchscreens on. Despite all the uh, despite all the election chaos in Texas, um, you know, certain counties in Texas are doing a really good job with early voting mm. uh, in Harris County at this point. They've already registered, I think, over a half a million early votes. Uh, they have drive through voting locations. They have tons of early voting spots. So uh, and believe it or not, I was actually in, you know, like I was skeptical of the NBA, but I saw a lot of pictures of people at the Toyota Center. Casting oh, yes. the ballots. So, hey, <laughs> full hey, circle, full circle. Hey, yes, this yes, is yes. this is big LeBron in action. <laughs> big, LeBron. <laughs> big LeBron Obama in action. Early voting. I mean, it's a hole or maybe blessing. Not clear. I mean, these it are is a, it, is a, it is a literal hole. Literal. Uh, hole. Yeah. <laughs> if only if only they didn't take away all of those, not all of them, but ma a majority of the drop-in ballots, ballot boxes in Texas, and maybe we wouldn't have this problem. But if you're in Texas, get your little finger sock, make sure you vote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, ra ra wrap it before you uh, tap it, your ballot. <laughs> wrap it before you tap <laughs> oh, Another hole for this week. Animated Mulan, which... Obviously, we need more of <laughs> real China, real Mulan. 
also flopped at the Chinese box office this year. <laughs> so Mulan is going in the hole for the rest of 2020. <laughs> and we are also going to bury that hole so that there it just does not exist anymore. No we are more Mulan for no, the next 1400 years. <laughs> until coronavirus is over, Mulan. no more Mulan. <laughs> Big Mulan needs to be shut down. This is a Plum Radio official call to stop surrender. No more Mulan. We have had enough. That's it. <laughs> Done. In the hole. Over. Somehow this this animated Mulan did even worse than Disney's Mulan. Uh, which Was it in shows the Uncanny that, Valley? <laughs> yeah, which shows that Chinese audiences are also as sick of Mulan as everyone else in the world. So... <laughs> Let's move on to our blessings for this week so we can bless our show. Uh, Dolly, why don't you give us a blessing? Oh, yes. AOC gave us our blessing for today or gave me my blessing for today. She tweeted, she's trying to play Among Us. I don't know if you guys have played Among Us, but it's actually, it's pretty fun. It's like werewolf or whatchamacallit, mafia, but on your phone, mm -hmm. it's a multiplayer game. So you can play with your friends. And she tweeted out, anyone want to play Among Us? Uh, to get out the vote and i was like that's so cute that is so sweet that's always aoc is always meeting the youths and the people where they are and she's like you guys are all playing this game great i'll play this game get out the vote yes 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 so aoc if you're listening to this we want to play among us with you invite us <laughs> we are we are fellow youth aoc We're we youth. are fellow We're youth. Still youth we are the youth please <laughs> please join us for a game of a round of video games <laughs> oh, joey give us one more blessing for our show oh my blessing for the week uh the socialists have won they've won re-election in yes, bolivia yes, and yes, yes. elon musk is big mad uh, if you haven't been following the situation in Bolivia, last year, socialist Evo Morales, the country's first ever indigenous president, was elected to his fourth term in office but had to flee the country a month later after threat of police and military violence, which is known uh, in most parts of the world as a coup. Uh, so why why was there a coup in Bolivia? You might ask. Just ask Elon Musk. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see. Elon Musk tweet. tweeted... Oh, in July. <laughs> technology. technology. Oh, Elon Musk. Oh, he loves that tweet. technology. Uh, Elon Musk tweeted in July that another stimulus program was, quote, not in the best interest of the people, IMO, uh, which if you're listening to a billionaire about what's in the best interest of the people, uh, I can't help you. Uh, to which Twitter user History of Armani replied, you know what wasn't in the best interest of people? The U.S. government organizing a coup in Bolivia so you could attain the lithium there. To which he responded, we will coup whoever we want. Deal with it. That is so, <laughs> wow. The privilege, the privilege. You, you know, you don't usually see like the CEO of a publicly traded tech company admit to like attempting to stage a coup or <laughs> you know i think like vaguely successfully staging a coup um except the coup wasn't meant to last evil morales so he ended up blaming the u.s to for giving the green light to the right-wing coup leaders uh and attributed attributed the coup towards western anger to sell some of Bolivia's lithium to China rather than the West. Uh, lithium obviously being the key ingredient in lithium ion batteries, which pop, which uh, power all the electric cars that um, are uh, where Elon Musk's fortune is coming mm -hmm. from. 
But uh, mm-hmm. last year, after they had this coup, uh, it kicked off a year of widespread protests. Uh, you know, folks in the street almost constantly for a year uh, demanding a re-election, which uh, Morales' successor, Luis Arque, who is a former economic minister, won decisively, avoiding a runoff. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of talk in the U.S. over like, you know, what happens if there's a coup? Take to the streets. That's what it is. That's how, that's what worked in Bolivia. So uh, and, and by the way, what excuse did Mike Pompeo give to justify the coup? That's right election fraud mm-hmm. so <laughs> so oh so if you uh so if you hear similar things this fall in your uh, local democratic country <laughs> just know the people in bolivia they've seen this before they know what to do and now you do too and you know what the the people who overthrew eva morales they were essentially it was the like the white conservative people of bolivia which is like a very heavily indigenous mm-hmm. nation it's mm-hmm. like we know that white people can't just sit around and watch indigenous people. <laughs> take power. Like they just they need to go get the U.S. and Mike Pompeo involved. Yeah. Just, oh, they're oh. big man. Oh, they're big man. <laughs> big big man. Let's <laughs> just read this hilarious comment from Ashley. <laughs> In the comments, Ashley wrote, "Among us, but you have to guess the secret Trump supporter." Oh, AOC, make this. <laughs> <laughs> scary times is there a uh, trump supporter in these comments hmm. <laughs> uh, expose yourself expose yourself expose now yourself. now <laughs> uh, anyways oh a blessings a blessing to all the bolivians out there blessings in blessings, the streets blessings. fighting let's fascism do, let's get our incense going uh, do a little yeah. lighting we're going to light this blessing. We're going to light a little blessing. It's a bless our show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, while we uh, light this blessing, you know, our guest this week is Whitney Hu. She is an organizer, uh, an activist. She is the um, one of the organizers behind South Brooklyn Mutual Aid and also running for city council in New York City this year. Uh, and she's also an abolitionist. So we talked to her about what that means and how she is basing her platform off of abolition absolutely and we love this conversation with whitney because she really talks about dreamscaping and reimagining our futures um so you know it's tough to balance running for an office running uh, to be a politician but also being an organizer so stay tuned that interview is coming right up now that we've blessed the show just want to give a big thank you to two of our new Plum Radio members, Wei Young and Douglas. Yes. Thank you so, so much for your thank support. Thank you. Thank you. And big shout out to Douglas for signing up for our annual membership. Uh, annual memberships yes. are new on Patreon, which I love since I don't really like being charged a monthly fee. I would rather just pay. No one likes being charged $5 a month, really. Yeah, yeah, no. And it's just like, what is this? So make sure you do the annual subscription. Our annual membership on Patreon is just $50. And you can support our show, which is an independent show created by yours truly and Joey Yang. So head Mm -hmm. on over to patreon.com slash plum radio. Yeah, we've got our plum posse viewing of Snowpiercer coming up the Friday after the election. If the election gets you in a little bit of a revolutionary mood, that that'd be a, that'd be a great movie to to satisfy your urge. So, uh, so join us for that Patreon.com/slash/PlumRadio. Uh, pull up on us, and we'll pull up on you. Perfect, and we'll see you guys next Monday here on IG Live.
everyone, this is Whitney Hu. Whitney is an organizer and candidate for New York City Council District 38. Whitney, welcome onto Plum Radio. Thank you guys so much for having me. Of course, and you know, we do have plenty of New Yorkers who listen to the show, so for those who aren't clear where District 38 is, this includes Sunset Park, Red Hook, Greenwood Heights, a bit of Borough Park, a bit of Diker Heights, and Windsor Terrace. Whitney, I would love to just start with what inspired you to run? That's a really good question. It's kind of a two-part answer. So I would say initially when I decided to run, it was late last year. My neighborhood was coming to the point where there was a lot of special interests, a lot of real estate, a lot of displacement, a lot of gentrification. And the restaurants that I loved, the small businesses that I knew, my neighbors were leaving because they could no longer afford to live there. And I realized that we really needed to have somebody for the next round of the council who could really just fight and was willing to do the hard work, to do the organizing and to make every single rezoning, every single new building going up a battle. As somebody who is an organizer and somebody who is an activist, I was seeing that the sort of tenacity and energy that I I wanted in that seat wasn't happening, and, and I decided to run. During covid I threw myself into mutual aid and organizing and was present on the streets. And so I put my campaign on pause and really had a long conversation with myself and with a lot of people about whether or not I thought electoral politics was the path. I think there's a lot of saviorship that goes into people who decide to run. And I was really critiquing whether I thought I could do more work in the system or outside of the system. But I ultimately came to the point where I'm like, I'm an abolitionist. I am somebody who has been critiquing police brutality for a long time. And there is an energy and a fight to really reflect on not just policing, but the system itself. And if there was ever a moment to bring that lens, I can use electoral politics as a tool. I myself am not the answer, but the path and the way to organize people is. And so I decided to run again. Wow. Wow. I love that. That's a really powerful answer. And, you know, you cover you cover a lot in that as well. Uh, Perhaps we can start with, you know, what you were seeing in your neighborhood. What would you define as your neighborhood? And can you help me understand who the constituents of District 38 are? Who would be the people that you represent? I have like so much pride for our district. I really do think it's reflective of the narrative that we believe New York City to be. At Sunset Park, you have a very strong Latino and Asian community and a lot of new immigrants. It was historically at one point Puerto Rican, and now we are seeing a lot of Mexican, Guatemalan. We're seeing a lot of Fujianese and Cantonese. We're seeing a really wide diaspora of folks coming together and living in a really nice, like, immigrant community. It's a very mishmash group and they might seem so different, but at the same time, you're talking to communities who have been fighting for climate justice, who've been fighting to keep gentrification out and who have been in some ways able to keep a community feeling because I think we can have some strong conversations in New York City about how we're eradicating the sense of each other in a lot of these neighborhoods that are becoming overdeveloped and like prioritizing property over people. I know for you, you know, one of the big issues, of course, is on rent and, you know, addressing some of these new high rises and luxury condos that are going into this part of Brooklyn. What do you see as the issue um, to these new high rises? Who is it impacting and who are the people who are coming in? 
And this is kind of an issue that I think is systemic to the way we have our land use process. Um, the way it has been for the last couple of decades, it's something that really prioritizes this idea that economic development needs to come through the path of overdevelopment. Mm-hmm. And that comes in the form of negotiating with communities to get bare minimum. So for me, it's this idea of like, well, in order to get affordable housing, we must work with a private developer to build a 20-story building and you get X amount of affordable housing units. But what they don't tell you is that those often have sunset provisions on them. So it's like every X amount of years, they have to fulfill this contract with the city for this like set amount of time. So by the time it sunsets, we're having to rebuild affordable housing and so we keep building and building and building versus, I think, investing in long-term solutions. Like, what does it look like to really make meaningful public invested housing? I mean, we've defunded and completely left behind public housing opportunities. If you're in the Red Hook houses, like you can see that they're in a really big state of neglect. New York City really needs like sustainable, long-term, affordable. And and I'm not even talking like, you know, what they usually do where they're sort of like, well, it's like 15% off of what we would usually do. I'm like, I'm talking like we're looking at what people's incomes are and guaranteeing housing because I really do think we can replicate a housing guarantee on the local level. I I also think that comes through looking at the way that we do rezonings too, because a lot of those luxury buildings that are going up, at least in my neighborhood, came from a you know a Fourth Avenue rezoning Bloomberg era, and a lot of those are grandfathered in without needing to have affordable housing units in there too. So I think they're like especially atrocious. So a rhetoric that you've been hearing a lot has been pushing for comprehensive rezonings that really do look at a community in a snapshot and be like, well, if we're going to put more housing here, we also need to put more schools. We need a bit more like transit lines. And I think that sort of balancing is what we really need, where it's less about I need development to make money and more of like, what do we do to make neighborhoods livable? You know, this decision that you made to, you know, uh, pause your campaign and then start restart it again. I think this really speaks to a lot of our existential crises right now with this being an election year, with this being such a contentious election year. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your train of thought, you know, restarting the campaign? You know, what does it mean to change the system from both inside through politics and outside of it as an organizer. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of conflicting feelings and, you know, for folks who are kind of in that boat as well, you know, just feeling so tied up and not knowing what to do to be the change. Why politics? That's a really good question. Um, I sometimes think I'm like Jekyll and Hyde on the inside. Um, earlier today, I had to go speak at an event about the Supreme Court. And some part of me is like, yeah, like, you know, we have to save that seat. And the other part of me is like, also like, when has the law ever cared about black, indigenous and people of color? Like, I don't know. Does this really right, mean anything? Right. You know, I, you know, there are people who are crying over Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I'm like, she didn't like black and brown people. Like, I don't know. 
but at the same time, I can reflect that, she, <laughs> you know, I can reflect that she did change a lot for, for women and, and, you know, in that intersectionality lens. And so I went up there and I was like, I'm not here to just demand for a fair minded judge. I'm here to demand that I want a leftist judge. I want a radical judge. I want somebody who knows that until we can construct and destruct the system, that this is never fair and that they're in those back rooms, just like really fighting, you know, I'm like, let's, let's create like the, the, the same sort of like evangelicals, but like, let's be leftist about it and like really hold on to those moments. And so I'm trying to figure out the, like the duality that I sort of can talk. And I think, you know, I have the conversation is sort of different for white people versus like BIPOC people, to be honest, like with white people, I'm just sort of like, you got to dismantle the system. Like I want you on the streets. I want you marching. I want you talking. I want you to go everywhere. Like I want you to put all your resources because like, I kind of put the onus of like saving our democracy, like that burden, it's like yours to bear, right? Mm -hmm. Versus for bike park people, I like want to meet them where they're at because I think we don't talk about the trauma. We don't talk about the exhaustion. I, I feel like people enter the room and they're like so worried about this idea of like diversity. And then sometimes I have to be like, who needs to bear that emotional burden? And should I be demanding people of color to, to come into the room? And, and in some ways, like, yes, I want them there. In some ways, I'm also cognizant that that room or the organizing force might not be ready for them. And, and what sort of emotional labor am I pitting on to folks? And so I'm always very like nuanced on that. But I think what's been really energizing is a lot of young people, like, and I'm talking like Gen Z, because I mean, I like to think I'm young, um, but I'm talking like Gen Z and, and I guess it's a Gen Alpha, but uh, the Gen oh, after wow, that. there's a new Gen. Okay. Yes, I think there's yeah, a new Gen coming. They've been the ones who I, you know, I really want them to see and to grasp and to understand the systems more so than politics. Um, and I had a long conversation, I, you know, with the mutual aid, I had two young, I had a black woman and, um, a young, um, Latinx man, like, you know, in the cargo van and we're driving to drop off like a whole bunch of boxes and we were having a really long conversation. And for them, it was like this frustration at their immigrant parents and, but to also like contextualize it in like, my parents are so financially stressed, so worried about my future that if they don't think I can actually go and become X, Y, Z, that I'm going to become and stay within the cycle of poverty that has harmed us continually. That was an opportunity to sort of help them see that this individual experience that they're having, that we're all having, that we're all within the system and that we need to break that part that's where I'm more interested in talking and engaging in politics than to be like, you need to go vote. You need to go run for office. I'm more like, how are we going to break out of this moment and where you find that path, whether it's a mutual aid, whether it's running for office, whether it's studying it and talking about intergenerational harm. Like I want to support that work. Um, you talked about being an abolitionist. Um, I want to understand what does it mean to you to be an abolitionist? Uh, what, what should we look forward to in the future in terms of abolition? And how does this conversation unfold when you speak to, say, a white community versus, say, a BIPOC community? Mm -hmm. If you would have asked me if I thought I would become an abolitionist like years ago, I don't think I would have even known. I was raised in the South. I had a fairly conservative father. Um, 
I like, I even like, I even tell people like, you know, my college reference letter came from a Texas Ranger and a prosecutor. Like I was like oh, wow. in the system. <laughs> I was like in the system. And I think when, you, when was, you're from Texas, right? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Texas, but cool. born in California. The longest I've ever lived in one place is New York city, but we, we bounced around a lot. I think for me, it kind of started really small. I think when I started reading and, and realizing that what I learned in textbooks, what I thought was right or wrong really was way grayer than, than I think the way we, we were taught in terms of like black and white, um, and like good and evil and, and things like that. And then I think it really came down to me sort of questioning the legality of anything. Um, I, worked on getting gay marriage passed and, and protected in Iowa. Well, gay marriage was illegal. Like that's, that's like something that you, you could get in trouble for. Like it slowly led me down a path of really reflecting on what a racial justice lens meant. And then taking that even deeper to be like, well, if I know that black and brown men are being criminalized at higher rates, like how do I, how do I, take that all of a sudden to even believing the death penalty, knowing that there is a percentage where we're killing people for, for what reasons, even if we might be wrong. And like, and then all of a sudden, if you don't believe in the death penalty, you're then like, well, what are cages? Why are people in jail? Like, how are we actually helping people? And when you look at rehabilitation rates of the fact that like a lot of people are end up becoming incarcerated again, you're like, well, jails aren't even serving a purpose. Like they're not helping anyone. And then I entered the system of government and I think by working in government and by volunteering and, and like working in different spaces, I really just saw how consistently the system failed people and how every time the answer always fell down to cops, 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 cops. Like you called 311 in New York City for anything. I got locked in a park. Instead of calling the parks department, they called the cops. And like, they were like, oh, you might get arrested for trespassing. And I'm like, they locked me in here. I didn't want to be in the park late mm -hmm. at night. You know, you really see that where there's just no answers. There's no services. There's no, you, you get really stuck in the fact of like, I can't help people because the way I want to help people isn't there and everything ends up in policing. And so a long answer is like, I got really frustrated by that. And the part about abolition that people often forget is that it's not just divesting and abolishing the system. It's also about like reinvesting in our communities and reimagining futures. And to be honest, like if you're imaginative, like it's the best space to be because all of a sudden you can dreamscape. You're like over here being like, what does it look like to have fully funded schools? Like, what does it look like that when somebody is suffering from a drug addiction that we're able to actually give them care? Like, what does that look like where if you see somebody is homeless, like you're not calling the cops on them, you're able to send a team that has like a nurse and a social worker and we can actually take them to a home. Like, what does that look like? And I think in that answer, I think that's where I want to be because we've never seen it. And so in some ways, abolition is also trust and faith in each other and also believing that we can hold each other accountable too. When I talk about abolition to BIPOC communities, it depends right? Because we have been told so long for a community, like our elders, like especially in the Asian community, believe that safety means policing. And and so for young people, especially having conversations with our uncles and our aunties who've been kind of feeding into this, what are the things that they actually want to see? 
Because if you remove policing from it, most oftentimes people don't say police. And, and I had this conversation with a, with actually a business owner and he said speed bumps. Like that was the thing he really wanted. And he thought it came through police and he didn't realize that came through DOT. <laughs> Having those conversations. And then I think the second part is also reminding them our Asian American history. Cause I think, and this is the fight that my dad and I had. Cause I'm like, you want to bring in China's history. I want to talk Asian American history. And my solidarity has been based within Black Lives Matter because I was like, you want to, you didn't want to bring up names. I was like, we also have Vincent Chin. We have Yang Song. Those are people with our faces, our heritage, our background who've been brutalized by police. Chinatown shut down and marched to City Hall. That is the history. That is the movement that I'm bringing. We are not new to this struggle. We've just forgotten it. I want to take just a half step backwards real quick. What is your working definition of abolition? For me, I think the one that I work under is abolition is working to reduce the harm of the current system to divest and abolish the current carceral system. And I say carceral because it's prisons, it's jail, it's ICE, it's also like child protective services, things that have been done and used to police Black and Indigenous and people of color and immigrants and, and to put them in harm's way. And then it's reinvesting and reimagining what accountability looks like. When you think of accountability, it starts in so many different places. Like right now, it starts with an organizing group. How do we hold each other accountable? How do we address harm when harm is done? Because I'm an abolitionist, that doesn't mean I think people can go around harming each other. I just believe in a different way that isn't based upon punishment, but it's based upon making sure that these harms don't happen. And when they do, we have a real way of addressing it to make sure that people who are survivors are felt heard and are seen in the system and to make sure that folks who have done the harm are able to address it and are able to, in some way, seek redemption and forgiveness too and to correct the wrongs that were done. And one of the things that I think is so compelling about abolition is the ability for us and, and really the, the, the call for us to dream bigger, to reimagine this world where we, uh, we you know, reimagining our communities. So how do we balance this act of dreaming and reimagining our communities with the reality of the world that we live in today and making change that will help people in our communities today and tomorrow? I think it's also having to realize that the reality that we live in is in a system that is really harmful and working against us, capitalism. Um, you know, we're, we're living in a, in a system that profits off of black and brown bodies being incarcerated that has profited off of COVID-19 with 200,000 people dead. The richest people just got richer. In the mutual aid space, I, I really do think that's an, an antidote for how people can rethink of their neighbors because we're working together and, and we're meeting people and you're seeing people face to face in a way that maybe you don't necessarily always do in New York City, especially in some ways, you know, not to always be uh, repeating Maroon Kaba, but when she says like hope is the discipline, like I think we have to be really active in that. I loved, you know, this phrase dreamscaping used um, hand in hand with abolition. And so I want to I want to take a few moments to dreamscape a bit. If you were to become a council member, you know, if 
you know, your, your vision can be implemented, what, were, what would be the first three things you would tackle for New York? Ooh, that's such a good question. I'm really invested in reimagining the way we plan our communities. And I think it's been incredibly property and profit driven. And I'm really invested in what it looks like to create livable communities. So like fighting as of right developers who come in and, you know, they can build whatever they want and sort of be like, well, I bought the land. So they have to deal with it and not giving communities a say. And we're seeing that in Sunset Park with last mile trucking facilities where you just have trucks like delivering packages and it's really creating unsafe roads and actually adding more to our climate in terms of smog and whatnot. I think the second one is education and like families. Like I don't want to reimagine families, but like I do in a way. I want to reimagine what childcare looks like. I want to reimagine what paid family leaves looks like in the city. I want to reimagine it for folks who typically aren't at the table, like fast food workers and for folks who are essential workers but are undocumented. Like what does it look like to reimagine that? And then to take that into education right now. You know, I don't know if you guys listen to the podcast, like Nice White Parents by the New York yes, Times. I just yeah. so good. Oh my oh, god. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that. Oh my goodness. I mean like I feel like man, every I, every white person is like a nice white parent whether or not they have a child. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing, right? It's and I and I think the thing that makes abolition and Black Lives Matters and all these different ideas so uncomfortable for white people is what we're asking is that the power and the intent is not them. I think the last one is like, I do really want to reimagine workers' rights and I, and small businesses and reimagining, you know, everything from like commercial rent stabilization for small businesses. I mean, I've been doing some nerdy researching about like, why are our buildings so big? Because we assume that it's going to be a giant chase bank moving in who can afford it versus like building like smaller, more condensed spaces actually allows for more small businesses to pop up because the rent isn't as high. And I was like, my new campaign, reimagining smaller buildings. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But but like, even just like rethinking of like, how do we actually want to get more small businesses? And like, it shouldn't be a business owner and a worker fighting each other. Like that shouldn't have to be the thing because if we had something like a Medicare for all, why would they be fighting over insurance? So like if more people had money, if our minimum wage was like $20, then like more people be spending things, they can raise the prices, then they can pay their work. Like it's like we're keeping people fighting each other. And then I do really want to rethink about how many unions and reinvesting in workers collectives and really rethinking about how we can support people who are working and to also like have some form of like jobs guarantee, home guarantee to make sure that people can stay within the system. Yeah. I think, of course, at the top of everyone's mind is also this upcoming election, this upcoming presidential election. What do you make of the Democratic candidate that we have? Have we demanded enough of a left-leaning politician? And what is your sentiment towards this upcoming November election? It's, oh man, it's so tough. Um, I will say Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were not my first, second, or third choice. And <laughs> for holding Joe Biden, holding Kamala Harris accountable, like there's, that's always that rhetoric. Like you never really push candidates to the left once they're in office. They tend to moderate. They tend to try to become a consensus building. They learn the, the opposition and, you know, and Joe Biden is always like, oh, I was in Congress and I, I know how to like work with the other side. I think I'm really interested 
interested to see what that work looks like on the local level. And I don't even think it means, you know, I think the stewardship that we can be doing and that is really interesting could be on the state level where we can push for more radicalized things. Because if we actually want to change the DNC, it has to happen on the local level first. Like it needs to be like a state or citywide thing passes. They see its success. They feel comfortable. All their consultants and pundits, they do all the math and the polling. And then all of a sudden it adopts. And so that's where like, you know, a basic income guarantee or a housing guarantee, as much as I love the idea of like rolling it out federally, I don't think it's going to happen. So for me, it's like the sort of policy discussion I have is like, what does a housing guarantee look like in New York City? How do we make it so popular that all of a sudden Portland, you know, Chicago, LA starts doing it. And then all of a sudden, you know, begrudgingly Denver comes in, maybe even Austin and Dallas. And then all of a sudden the DNC turns around and it's like, oh man, it's polling so high. It's 80%. We're going to have to do it. <laughs> and I think that work feels more urgent and, 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 and actionable because you are literally doing it in your community. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for your neighbors. You're doing it for your loved ones. You're doing it for your family. Like, I think if we were pitting that energy into fixing what's in within our space and what feels tangible and touchable, I think we'll also be less exhausted too. Like all these conversations of like call Chuck Schumer, call Chuck Schumer. I'm like, I don't, Chuck don't care. I don't even know, like, <laughs> you know, but you know who he is going to care about when we get AOC to primary him. Like that's what we need to talk about. So <laughs> fingers crossed everyone. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's sort of my belief in terms. I am someone who does care like what's happening on the national level, but I don't know if there, our antidote is ever going to be by flooding their phone lines because we've been doing that since 2016, if not far longer. Um, I think if we really want to do change, like we got to do it on the local and, and state level in a way that I think the DNC and all the national pundits can't ignore. Now, for a lot of folks, I think the the process of you know, organizing or being an activist can be very intimidating or a very daunting prospect. What would you say for folks who want to get more involved, but don't know where to start? I think a really good political home for people who are new to the political process are their mutual aids. And, and I would really look at one that's run by volunteers and run that has like credited the organizing with, you know, that's like BIPOC led because I think that filter is really useful because all of a sudden you're thinking of the community, you're thinking of people who have been harmed by the government. And so all of a sudden when something comes up like a, like a rezoning, you have people around you to kind of like hold you accountable to keep that lens to make sure, okay, now that I'm doing this rezoning, I'm not looking at like the fancy, like Chipotle they're promising me. I'm looking at the fact that they're displacing 30 black people. Right. So like, I think mutual aids are really good because mutual aids aren't just about providing for our communities and, and solidarity. It's also about political education. So I think if you're new, a mutual aid is a really good new home. You can also start looking for collectives. Like what's nice about Twitter is that like really smart people are fucking accessible right now. If you're lucky every now and then prison culture unlocks her Twitter, follow, follow. But I think finding people who are kind of trusted and vetted and then seeing who they elevate from different communities and then following the person that's a little bit closer to you. I love that so much. My final question for you is um, I love the thing that you said earlier about how Hope is a discipline. You know, I think with the way that 2020 has gone, um, I think it'd be really exhausting and really hard for people to hold on to hope. So 
how do we build hope as a discipline? How do we keep our heads up? How do we keep fighting? I will say completely not trademarked by me. That is very much a Marine Kaba <laughs> statement, but, um, especially for, for BIPOC folks, it is exhausting. There are days where like, I don't want to leave my apartment and there are days where, you know, you can't do anything but to cry and that's okay. Like you should have those days. We're all exhausted. And, and this is a, 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 you know, we're, we're in a very long fight, but I also think you should find ways to build hope within the actions that you do. Um, I think for myself, I'm always trying to focus on what our mutual aid has been able to accomplish, to focus on people who bring me hope, to to seek out when I'm feeling lonely, to seek people out versus to like self-isolate, which is surprising for people because I, I come off as an extrovert, but I tend to get really harmony when I'm like overwhelmed. Um, there was a day during we were fighting a really, really big industry city rezoning process and I was so overwhelmed. I like sat in the park with some tacos and just like listened to kids running around and, you know, and Asian ladies like dancing in the corner and there was like a mariachi band practicing. And I'm like, this is what gives me hope. Like these, our people are resilient. We are resilient. We have survived eons of white people and white supremacy trying to destroy us. Thank you so much, Whitney. And good luck. And this is to another Ian of surviving white supremacy. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I mean, I appreciate you, you know, being there for that good fight. Cause you know what? It's, it is through organizing, through fighting, through advocacy that we've made it here. We've made it this far and we're, we're still here. Thank you so much for joining us yeah. on Plum Radio, Whitney. And if people want to follow you and see what you're what you're going to be up to and follow along your campaign, where can they find you? Um, they can sign up for my newsletter at who hu twenty twenty one dot com. Um, you can also I I will say I think I'm the funniest on Twitter. Uh, that's at Whitney underscore who, uh, or you can follow my nicely curated photos at Whitney Who on Instagram. I am on tiktok but i'm not very good at it yet give me time <laughs> <laughs> thanks whitney and good luck thank with your you campaign. thanks dolly thanks joey thank you so much have a good night i really i loved our conversation with whitney because the idea of there being more just progressive left-leaning and radical politicians i think a lot of it is inspired by aoc I think that she has empowered a lot of young women like Whitney, especially women of color, to step up and not be afraid and remove these delineations between organizer and activist and politician. Yeah, and I there's a there's that there's like that remark that always sticks with me when it's like you you're watching AOC in Congress and it's like is this what it look is this what it feels like to have a politician that like represents you like to have a politician that like looks like you and represents you and cuz you look at Congress and it's like there's so many people who just like cannot relate to right especially for people of our mm-hmm. generation right it's it's typically you know totally older folks and, and it's unrelatable like and Joe Biden unrelated <laughs> Right. Right. And, and to, to be able to look at someone like a, like an AOC or a Whitney is just so refreshing because it's of how, because of how rare it is 
to see someone that looks like us and that thinks like us, that thinks like us and that talks like us in the halls of power and have the ability and the leverage to actually make change for our communities. Mm -hmm. I still, I, you know, I still have a lot of skepticism in general of politicians and also of dreaming in ways that don't end up in like concrete steps sure. in which these plans can be implemented. Right. So that is my hope and ask of this new generation of politicians. I hope that we can be more than words, right? Which is typical, just typical of previous generations of politicians. It's a lot of words. It's a lot of repeating of the same mantras. Um, but I want to see practical changes, you know, and in a more immediate way, like how do you address the economic pains that they're going through? And these pains are just, they're going to get worse. Like the worst of the pandemic has yet to hit. And I am certain that New York is going to see something really, really bad happen because there's no way real estate is sustainable in that city. Yeah. So, you know, if you are feeling devastated or lost because of this election cycle, because of this hellfire pandemic, wildfire, Joe Biden, Trump, and then there's a fly situation that we're all in. I take some words of wisdom from Whitney, you know, look towards your local communities, look towards your neighbors, look towards the people who have the greatest impact on you and who you can have the greatest impact on, right? Like though that is what we remain hopeful for. That's what we remain optimistic for. Like truly going at the grassroots level, the way you see, you know, AOC kind of um, taking the lead politically um, in the Bronx is how we're likely going to see change because I mean, that's hard not to feel like all help, all hope is lost at the federal level. Mm -hmm. And, and I really love what she said also about how, you know, hope is a discipline. And I think it is so hard to continue to be hopeful when in the face of all this, but I love how she points to mutual aid um, and, and to community as a way of having hope and finding that community and for mutual aid to be a way for people to get involved. Uh, I want to give a really quick shout out to Berkeley Mutual Aid. Uh, that's a group you know, where I am that's doing great mutual aid efforts. And mutual aid looks different in every community, but uh, for Berkeley Mutual Aid, um, you know, I, I signed up on their website and they connected me with an elderly couple that needed help getting their groceries and that, um, you know, felt, um, you know, afraid to go to the grocery store during, during the pandemic. And so, you know, you know, they, they leave money in the mailbox and I go get groceries and, and that's like a thing. It's just, it's a small effort, right. But to see how it affects, um, your neighbors and to, to improve the lives of your neighbors, even just that little bit, um, can, can really go a long way towards giving us the hope that we need to continue. Right. Yeah. And the one that Whitney is involved with is the South Brooklyn Mutual Aid Fund. But there's actually quite a few in Brooklyn um, for my old neighborhood in Brooklyn. Right now, there's like these Amazon Prime deals going on. And in our neighborhood's mutual aid group, it's just a big thread right now. It's like, OK, who needs stuff? Just list it. And that way we can all, you know, make sure that our community's needs are covered you know, I've also seen a lot of stuff where it's like, oh, my students, I have a student who needs winter clothes. I remember I had some extra. So, you know, making sure that the things that you need and the things that other people need, like there's definitely so much room to facilitate that exchange and support your neighbors and get to know them. So definitely find your local mutual aid group. I'm certain your neighborhood has one and it may not be called mutual aid, but 
community is really what we're talking about. Yeah. And I think where a lot of, you know, activism or political work can feel so, you really feel like, you know, you're pushing the boulder up the hill, working in your own community and seeing and working with people in your community, working with your neighbors, helping your neighbors. That's something that, that really goes a long way towards feeling like, you know, your efforts just aren't, aren't so hopeless, right? When you build a relationship with your neighbors and become more connected with your community, that, that really goes a long way. So if you guys believe in this and also believe in our show, enjoy the episodes and the guests that you've been hearing on Plum Radio. Make sure that you support our show, become a member of our Patreon. You can join us for just $50 a month at patreon.com. $50 a year. $50 a year. Ooh, sorry, guys. Uh, uh, not $50 a month. One more time. Yes, one more time, yeah, one more time. If, if you want, you're more than welcome to leave us $50 You are more a than month. welcome. If you want to send us $50 a month through Patreon, we will read we'll read something on the show for you how about that how about that <laughs> we'll read a note of your choosing <laughs> do you have a novel or or, or, or something we can if you have read, a novel we'll read it. <laughs> or if you have something you want to plug like your mutual aid community group for $50 a month, we'll plug. Oh, no, we'll, we'll, we'll do that for free. You can email us at hi at plumradio.com anytime and we'll plug your mutual aid effort. Uh, that one's on the house, no doubt. That one's on the house. So, yes, become a Plum Radio Patreon member today for just $50 a month. Um, you can also do $50 a, year. a year. $50 a year. $5 a month or $50 a year. There's a, there's a two-month discount in there if you get the yearly subscription. And it helps us save on credit card fees. But $50 a month is great too. $50 a year. And if you really, if that's not, if that's not, you know, in, in the books for you, you know, give us five stars on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to our podcast. It really helps us reach new audiences. And our show is produced by yours truly, Dolly Lee. And I'm Joey Yang. Write to us, talk to us, DM us on Instagram at listen to Plum Radio. You can also send us email at hi at plumradio.com. And join us on our next Instagram live show on Monday. See you next time, everyone. Take care. Bye, y'all. <laughs>